Well, last week we started a brand new series called Markers. And this series to me is most likely the, the most important series that, that I could preach all year, quite honestly. And it's something that I've wrestled with for months and months. Perhaps some of these concepts I've actually wrestled with years for years. And one of the reasons why is because I've found that, that us as, as a people, oftentimes we are convinced that we're true followers of Jesus and yet we're not born again. And what I said last week was that there could have been an event in, in your life where you, you came forward at a crusade or vacation Bible school or a church service, you talked to a spiritual person, and you could have come forward, and yet if you came forward and you said some words and you prayed a prayer, but if you have not received the Holy Spirit of God, if you're not born again, that you're not truly saved. And I said, in that moment, you could have a story. You could have had all of these spiritual things. But if you don't have the Holy Spirit residing within you, all you did was took a walk. And I said, you could have even followed that up and done what everybody else was telling you to do. And well, you need to have, you need to have, a, you know, to be baptized. You need to go forward. You need to go talk to the pastor or whoever, the spiritual person in charge and say, I want to be baptized. And you could have come forward to be baptized and you could have been baptized. But if you're not born again, that's what we learned from, from John three with Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus. But if you're not born again, and in that, you could have came forward, you could have walked the aisle, you could have gotten baptized, but all you did was you took a walk and you got wet. If you don't have the Holy Spirit of God within you, if you're not born again, I want you to know it. But I also want you to know if you are born again, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to have these, these markers. And I'm, I'm highlighting certain markers largely from 1 John, but I'm honest to highlight these markers because I want you to see that they're either evident in your life or they're not. And I want you to do whatever it takes that God leads you to do in those moments to make it right with him. Because in this, spiritual life isn't gray. It's in full color. It's in full view. So the question that was introduced last week, and really this is the question for the whole series, and the question that we wrestle with is this, does my life verify that I'm one of God's own? Does my life verify that I'm one of God's own? So is there something in my life that verifies that I'm truly born again? That God is changing me from the inside to the outside now that it's visible. Visible in my relationships, visible in my desires, visible in my words. Is it visible? Does my life verify that I'm one of God's own? Last week, uh, I didn't share this, but this is somewhat of a summary statement from last week's talk. I could have summarized it with this, but I thought, you know, that I would actually get into the Bible and just not my phrase. So that was supposed to be funny. It was sad, but it was. But this is, this is the phrase. If I could summarize last week's talk and bring it to this week, it's this. In every, in every aspect of the religious life, the Christian faith has met American culture and the American culture won leaving cultural Christianity with a standing knockout. And I think this is a glorious opportunity for the church. I don't say this with any, any bit of pessimism at all because I believe that in that, that the, the people within the American faith tried to be so buddy-buddy with the American culture that in that, I think that the lines got blurred and people started to think, well, I'm truly saved because, because I'm either moral or because I'm good or I'm American or I live in an American, you know, that we're all saved people because we're Americans. And we think, well, we're, we're here, so we're good. 
And even in that, those two things are at odds. And I think this could be a glorious, glorious opportunity for the church. And I think what will rise out of these days is something so hopeful, something so pure, a more pure gospel than what we've seen. And maybe I'm just naive, but I believe that a movement of God could start right here in this place. And I believe it could start with the people who are in this room. If we were to take this message that you're going to hear, and part of this is familiar to you, but if you would receive it in the way that God wants you to, and wrestle with the, the asking the question, is this truly a spiritual marker in my life? What we'll see is that love is the thing that actually won over Judaism. Love won over the Roman Empire. Love won over the, the, the Greek culture of which the New Testament was birthed. And even in, in our day, right here and now, you may say, well, I just, I don't understand what this whole cultural Christianity thing. And cultural Christianity is this. Cultural Christianity is not Christianity rooted in Christ. It's rooted in a false culture, a culture built upon some morals, assuming that we're good with God because we're moral people. And you're never going to be moral enough. You're never going to be good enough to be right with God. Now, this past week, I had an opportunity to, actually, the whole family had an opportunity to go up to the mountains, and it was a blast. Um, and I know as soon as I say mountains, some of you are like, ew, that's gross. There's like rocks and trees and dirt. And I get it. And some of you are like, I want to go to the beach. But when I hear beach, I hear sand everywhere, even after I take a shower, and like salt water and the sun bakes the salt water on your skin and then it's crusty salt on your skin. So, you know, to each their own. But we went to the mountains, had this opportunity to go for a couple of weeks. I just actually explained my wife, actually. That's actually what I was doing, given the contrast between Marla and I. She loves the beach. So we went to the mountains for a couple of days. And one of the things I like to do on a little mountain, you know, times, little mountain vacation getaways is I like to go for a hike. So I, I got on the Appalachian Trail. Actually, I'll back it up a little bit. I parked in this parking lot and I'd set out, I'd done some research that I was going to, I was going to hike this certain amount of miles and it was a, a chunk of mileage and, and I was going to do it there and back. So I was parked, uh, parked at the parking lot. And as soon as, as I got on the trail, I walked up the trail a little bit and then I realized, oh, I'm actually going the wrong way. So then I actually I was on the Appalachian Trail and I started going the, the other way, which never would have got me to my location. So I went up and then I turned around. I was like, don't I feel dumb? But I felt even more dumb whenever people started coming up the opposite way and they seen me leave. They, they had seen me leave the parking lot and they knew that I had made the mistake. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. Apparently, I just don't know where I'm going. And I just kept walking and put my head down in shame. And eventually I went to the parking lot and then I started walking these steps and there's like a lot of steps up on this track. But as soon as I, I got off of this level of steps and just probably a quarter mile, half mile into, into my hike, I could smell a skunk. Gross, right? And you know that, that smell. If you've smelled a skunk, you know exactly what it's like. So I could, I could smell it and it was like, oh, that's, it was kind of faint, but it was kind of gross. So I kept hiking and the smell wasn't going away. As a matter of fact, it, I went up about a half mile and it was still there. About a mile, it was still there and getting stronger. 
And then and then a little bit further, and it was getting stronger. And then I was like, good grief, I must be at like the epicenter of where this happened because, I mean, it was just bad. And it was to the point where it was, it was so nasty smelling that I was like, I wondered if I was going to smell like the skunk. You know what I'm talking about? Like I was going to bring home some of the woods with me um, or back to the cabin. So it was kind of gross. And then I thought about it. Actually, I thought about it after the fact. I thought about it. You know what? A skunk is such an interesting animal. Because a skunk, the only reason you even know that a skunk is, was even there is if you smell it. Because it emits the smell from it, the, it, it emits the scent to basically warn off people or something that they feel threatened by. So fear is the reason why you smell the skunk at all. You see, that, that's really kind of interesting to me because in that, I wonder if people are either drawn to the message of Christ through us or repelled by the message of Christ through us. I wonder if they're drawn or repelled. And then I thought about it to a different level. And I thought, well, man, it's a skunk. And the only reason you knew it was there is because it feared something. And then because it feared something, you smell something. You get it? Like it's gross. So then I'm in the midst of this and I I was wrestling with it. And I thought, man, even in this, with the skunk being there, I wonder not only to the first thing of, of what is it that people, they're either drawn or repelled to us. But then I even took it to a different level. I thought of this. How we love lingers long in this lost world. How we love, it lingers long in this lost world. Like how we love people. Because ultimately, they're either going to be drawn to the Jesus that we love and serve, or they're going to be repelled. I love this because in 2 Corinthians, Paul uses an analogy of the aroma. So if you have your Bible... Go into uh, 2 Corinthians, and we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. Chapter 2, 14 through 17. He talks about this aroma. While you're flipping there, uh, another thing that, that I hear people say is they say, well, I mean, living, you know, what, what does living in our day have anything to do with living in in Jesus' day, what is it? What does the New Testament, the time period of the New Testament, have anything to do with now? So I just have a list of things, and I want you to decide if you think that the message of the New Testament is is relevant for today. Here's my list: the Romans worshipped their nation and their political leader. So you tell me if 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 the message that the New Testament was birthed out of is relevant today. The Romans worshiped the nation and the political leader. Pilate asked in John 18, 38, he asked, he says, what is truth? What is truth? In our day and age, like people are asking that question, what is truth? Another thing, the Gnostics, we unpacked this last week. Gnostics, um, they claimed that they could have a way to God by their own individualism because it was a secret knowledge of God. And as long as they had the secret knowledge through their individual means that they would be right with God. They, it's not True, of course, but that's what they believed. The Greeks were pro-gay. Paul spoke of the Romans' unknown God because their culture was polytheistic. They believed that there was several gods. So Paul spoke to the unknown God, which was the true God in Acts 17. 
The Ephesians were converted from witchcraft and demonic spirituality, and the Corinthian church could not, figure out to, could not figure out what to do when homosexuals were within the church, and they couldn't even figure out when there was incest in the church. The church was confused. As a matter of fact, the same issues, I believe, the same issues that the church has to wrestle with today are the same issues of which the New Testament was birthed out of. I'll even take it a step further. If you were to take your Bible and if you were to take out all the letters that addressed issues in the church, you wouldn't have much of a New Testament left. Because about every letter that Paul wrote, even when John writes in 1 John and and some other letters, it's addressing issues in the church. So the church in that day wasn't perfect. The, The church was absolutely flawed, just like it is in ours. But what they got right was love, was love. Second Corinthians, we're gonna start here. I actually wanna back up to verse 12. We're gonna see the context and then jump. Um, We're gonna really land on verses 14 through 17 and then we're actually gonna go into 1 John. Verse 12 says this, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened the door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and I went on to Macedonia. So now the consequence, now he's, he's bouncing from one place to the other. And now look what he says in verse 14. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. I love this triumphal procession. If you're in Christ, like lean into this, he leads you into triumphal procession. And this is the words of royalty. That means that he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. We have nothing to fear. And because now he leads us into triumphal, in this triumphal procession as he is the leader of this. And now he's bringing us through, through our life. Love that. Continues. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance, there it is, of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma, there it is again, of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. But look at verse 16. Man, don't miss verse 16. This will surprise you. To the one, we are the smell of death, and to the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men. Men and women sent from God. See, we are the aroma of Christ. We are to be living like Christ in our culture. Our job is to spread the aroma of Christ and to trust God with the details. Did you notice what he says is that we just need to be the aroma of Christ, the fragrance of Christ. We're to be a living sacrifice for Jesus. That's what every follower of Jesus is supposed to do. And there are certain markers of that. We're gonna spend a whole series unpacking it. We're gonna get to a big truth here in just a couple minutes in Ephesians 5. That's where we're headed. But I want you to see this. Our job is to be the aroma of Christ, to be the example of Christ, to be the living sacrifice for Christ, to live in Christ's likeness and trust God with the results because it says when we are the aroma of Christ, it is the smell of death to some and it is the smell of life to others. So understand when you live a life of Christ's likeness, you will naturally find friends and you will naturally find enemies. You will naturally find friends and you will naturally find enemies because they're not necessarily even enemies of you. They're enemies of the gospel of Christ. But notice there's just 
The contrast, that's all there is because that's all that exists. Listen to me, church, listen to me. That's all that exists on planet earth and that's all that it's ever existed. There's no middle ground. The gospel is either the smell of death to those who are perishing, those who have not received the gift of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the smell of death. And then are those that is the smell of life, that is the eternal life, that's the abundant life that Jesus talked about. But there's no middle ground. There's no slippery slope. It's either one or the other. And you, my friends, are either on this side or this side. There's no middle ground. There's no good enough. There's no moral equivalent for you. So when Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ, we are to be an example on earth of what Jesus, we're, we're to be the living example of what Jesus did. As a matter of fact, Paul picks up some similar language to this in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Again, I'm going to read uh, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 because these are the two preceding verses. And then you will see the exact way that you're supposed to be an imitator of God. Verse 31 says this, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. So if you're to be an example of God, if you're supposed to be an imitator of God is, what we're, is where we're headed here in just a moment. If you're to be the, the pleasing aroma of God, if you're to be uh, the, the fragrant offering as what it says also in this passage, if that's what we're supposed to be, it says first we need to rid ourselves, get rid of these things, get rid of bitterness, get rid of anger, get rid of, of, of malice and rage, brawling and slander to get rid of those things certainly within the family of God. In verse 32, Ephesians 4 says this, be kind and compassionate and forgiving just as Christ Jesus has forgiven you. And it's out of the basis of that that Paul writes this in verse 1 of Ephesians 5. He says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, Wow, think about this. As dearly loved children, you see, if we're dearly loved children, if you're, if you're part of the family of God, if you've been born again, if you've committed your life to Jesus and you have these significant spiritual markers along the way, you have nothing to fear because as dearly loved children, you see a loved child has nothing to fear. A loved child has a loved one, a mom, a dad, a grandma, a grandpa, uh, somebody who's fostering them, somebody they can go to with their arms wide open. And if you're a dearly loved child, you can go to them and, because there's welcoming there's welcoming arms for them as dearly loved children. You see the skunk, the only reason you know it was there is because it feared. And I wonder if that isn't the same response that the world sees with us, that they see Christians afraid, not trusting God, not living like, like dearly loved children instead of living like scared children, scared thinking, well, God must not be in control. Well, what's going on politically? What's going on socially? I don't even know what's going on spiritually. But what if we were imitators of God? We were kind and compassionate and forgiving just as Christ Jesus has forgiven us. And as imitating that as dearly loved children. And look what it says next. And live 
a life of love. And live a life of love. Here's what I know about love. Love requires action for it to be true. You can't say, well, I love you, and then not put action behind it and actually mean it. You can say, I love you with no action, and you're actually lying to yourself, and you're lying to them. Love requires action. And it says, and to live a life of love, just as Christ loved us, and he gave himself up for us as what? As a fragrant offering. This is a connection with the Old Testament and sacrifice to God. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says in there that, that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're born again, we're to be living sacrifices. So there's supposed to be an aroma in your life, again, pointing to the Old Testament sacrifices. There's supposed to be an aroma to your life as you living in Christ's likeness, that your life would be identified by your walk with God, that these markers would be so evident that you would see it yourself and those around you would see it and they would feel it. Then we see another thing in 1 John 3. This is all connected, by the way. 1 John 3, starting in verse 11. Our main passage. Everything else was the appetizer. Here's the main course. 1 John 3, 11 through 20. And before we go there, I want to give you the bottom line and, all of, and it'll connect the dots of all these things. The world hates while the Christian loves. The world takes while the Christian gives. The world will die, but the Christian lives. The world hates while the Christian loves. The world does what the world does. And the Christian is supposed to love no matter what. And the world takes, but the Christian gives. And the world will die. Those who are opposing God, but the Christian lives. First John, again, we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to retill, already tilled ground, but I will say this. Um, First John is largely refuting Gnosticism. Gnosticism, just a summary statement, is the, the idea that there's some secret knowledge of God that you have to learn for, yearn for it and look for it, and eventually you'll find it. It's only found in Jesus. Amen? Salvation is in Christ. It's rooted in Christ. Those who've committed their life to Christ, we are in Christ. He holds us. He keeps us. And there's spiritual markers along the way. Here's one of the spiritual markers. We're going to get to it. Verse 11. This is the message we heard from the beginning. Here it is. If you, if you are somebody who underlines or highlights in your Bible, this would be a great thing. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because here's the marker. Because we love our brothers or the brotherhood of believers, the family of God. Anyone who does not love remains in death. It doesn't get much more clear than that. Verse 15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. What he's saying in verse 15 is this, something that actually Jesus introduced in Matthew 5. He says, if you hate your brother, it's the moral equivalent to murder. He says, if you hate your brother, it is the moral equivalent to murder. Verse 16, 
This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us love not with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and we have set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. It's the word of God. We're going to do this a little different when I I go through this passage. We're actually going to start in verse 19 because starting in verse 11 through uh, 18, it actually, it sets up verse 19. So now I'm going to flip it in reverse because verse 19 gives us the full context and we're going to allow the rest of the verses to wash um, through this one. So verse 19 says this, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth. In this passage, John writes the word no because he's refuting the Gnostics of the secret knowledge of God. So he continues to use the word no to know. I want to point out two different meanings of the word no in, in this passage, but we'll start with this one. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. He says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth. Even if our hearts condemn us, even if our heart says, well, I don't know if you're saved, you're not, you're not acting, you're not acting in the right way. He says, no, no, no. Even when our hearts condemn us, we have a verify of the spiritual marker of God's presence of being born again. If we're loving the family of God, he uses the word no in this way in verse 19. It means to know experientially, experientially, to know experientially that it's, that it is a personal experience. This is something you've done. This is a connection point you have. He says, this then is how you know, you know, through experience, you don't just know how to love because you read a book. You don't just know how to love because you've read the Bible. You don't know how to love because you've attended church. You know how to love because first you've been loved by God, but then that after being loved by God, then that transitions through you, transmits through you rather to loving other people that verifies through experience that love truly exists in you. Do you truly Love the brotherhood of believers. I want to help you with something. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a question. Hopefully it's in the form of a question. But I want to give you a question to help you evaluate your walk with God, but also somebody else's. I'll set it up in this way. So many times I've had conversations with people here. This didn't happen in Illinois and it didn't happen in Florida, but it's happened here multiple times. Where I'll ask somebody, I'll say, um, you know, are, are you a Christian? Yes. And they'll, and they'll say something like, I love Jesus, Jesus. And they'll quote John 3, 16. Like with just some, some confidence, tightened backbone. And, oh, I forgot to love the world. The gave us one on Sunday. And it was like, wow, nailed it. Got that one right. And then I'll say, well, where do you go to church? And I say, ah, I just don't go to church. As soon as you ask somebody, are you a Christian? And you followed up with, where do you go to church? If they don't go to church, if they are not attending a church, that should put a seed of doubt in your mind and it should put a seed of doubt in their mind. Are they truly saved? 
Because if you're part of the family of God, one of the markers of spiritual growth, and that was right in the word that I just read, we read together, should be a love of the brotherhood. And I don't know about you, but I always want to be around people that I love. Like I love my, my grandma's house. My, my grandma's house is always welcoming. It's always welcoming in, during the holidays. It, prior to Thanksgiving, it's always welcoming because my grandma, it's, it's like the center point of my whole family and other people who just feel welcome and loved in my grandma's house. And one of the things that draws people into my grandma's house is my grandma's cooking. She makes great pies. So when, when she's making pies, it's like the whole kitchen, just it, people are just drawn to it, right? So it's like, but my grandma is home and it's just the aroma of love in the home. It's just like people are just drawn to it because they feel welcome. They feel welcome. And everybody feels welcome going to my grandma's house because they first feel loved and they don't feel judged. They just feel loved. That's what it's supposed to be like if you're really a born again follower of Jesus that you just love to be around people. You're just welcome to be in their presence and you welcome them into yours. I learned this a long time ago, actually, at church in Illinois, same one that I told the story from last week. And in the church in Illinois... Um, we found that church through some friends and we're at a bad place in our marriage, really a bad place in our life. We, uh, some issues in our lives had been hidden by busyness of either time in the military or time in college. And then all of that came to a head at the, at the same time that we found this church. But I have to tell you, the thing that drew me into this, me personally, the thing that drew me into the church wasn't even the truth. It wasn't the pastor. It wasn't the music. It wasn't, the denomination that it was tied to, the thing that drew me into that church was the fact that I felt loved. And there was something that was just so overwhelming to me in an amazing way. This church had a way of rallying around other people's needs. We, um, a storm had come through. It's familiar with our time in ministry, apparently. Storm had come through and had taken off part of our roof. It was enough to where the insurance would allow us to get a whole new roof. So it came time for us to have to have the roof put on. And the way this church worked is as soon as somebody, and I don't know who it was, but I don't believe it was any of the, the pastoral team. As soon as somebody heard that there was somebody else in need, there was a people who rallied around to meet that need. They just did it. They didn't have to campaign at church. They didn't have to make an announcement. They didn't have to beg people to be there saying, well, we'll feed you. Instead, when it came time for us to have this roof put on and I didn't ask anyone to be there, all I knew was there was a group of men who came with air compressors and nail guns. And then shortly after, there was a group of ladies who came with food. And then it was even part of, their, the, the, of the kids who were there were helping pick up stuff that was thrown off the roof to put it in tarps, to put it in the dumpster. You see, it wasn't the truth that drew me into that church. It wasn't a pastor, a personality that drew me into that church. It wasn't the music that drew me into the church. Instead, it was the love of the brotherhood of believers. It drew me in. And it was the love of the brotherhood of believers that drew me in. So then I listened to the truth. I was already saved, but then I started growing and eventually would be baptized. It was... It was, it, it was in that that God started to move in my life. And I wasn't tied to a denomination. I wasn't tied to uh, the pastor or personality, music, any of that stuff. I was drawn 
to that group of people because they loved well. I want us to be that kind of church. I want us to, even if we're not known for anything else, I want us to be known in the community that where, where people would say of us as a church, you know what? I don't know what all that they believe, but they love one another well. I want that to be the marker of your life. I want that to be the marker of our church because I believe it would make all the difference in the world. Not only did, does the Bible say in 1 John that we need to love the, the brotherhood or the family of God, also there's some other things that uh, the Gospels teach us and Leviticus teaches us about loving and loving well. It says in Luke 10, 27, it says we need to love to love your neighbor as yourself. So it's like, okay, now I need to love the family of God. Now this is extending out. Now I need to love my neighbor as myself. And again, this is an echo of, of the, the Old Testament in Leviticus 19. And then Jesus said this, again, taking it to a whole other level. He said this in John 13. John 13, 34 and 35, he says, I, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Notice what he says, and by this, by your level of love, by your intentionality of love, by the action of love. He says, by this love, all men will know that you're my disciples. He doesn't say because, because you pound the Bible harder than everybody else. He doesn't say because there's a certain denomination or non-denomination attached to your church sign. He didn't say because you have a really big church and a big platform. Because we've seen big churches come and go. Instead, he says this, by this, by your level of love, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And you look at this and you say, well, what's a new command? I'm like, a new command? Like, what's Jesus saying? He's saying that the level of love should be that of which you receive the love of God yourself. There's a depth to your walk with God that should compel you to love other people noticeably more than the world has on offer. Now, as if that's not enough, then again in Luke 6, 27, it says this, to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. I don't know about you, but I, I look at the Bible and I'm like, good grief, really? Like, I'm all right in this one. Ah, all right, I might be all right in this one. Ah, but then there's always like another one. And, and I share this not to create a gotcha because I think the Bible's full of gotchas. But I share this because this is the level of love that the gospel should compel us to. Not just love people within the family of God, not just to love those who are our neighbor, those in close proximity, but even those who oppose us, even those who are on the, on the, the other side of the political I'll as us, even those who are on the other side of social issues as us, even those who, who don't see things morally like you do, says, do good to those who hate you. Speaking of hate, in this passage, you, you see there's this reference to Cain and Abel in our main passage in 1 John 3. And the reason why Cain and Abel is mentioned here is because they're brothers, and because this passage is, is supposed to be about the marker, about the, the love of the family of God and the marker of just the increase of love of the family of God, now John puts in here Cain and Abel, brothers, both of them born. 
the same family, but both of them have completely different trajectories. Abel is the, he's the son of promise and Cain is not. But Cain couldn't get out of his own way because Cain was busy looking at what Abel had. And he was jealous about what Abel had. I think there's, there's a hidden sin in the family of God and it's, it's someone within the family of God being jealous of what somebody else has in the family of God. Maybe jealous of a certain gifting that somebody else has. Maybe their gifting shines brighter than yours and you're jealous of that gifting. Maybe it's, it's jealousy because that person has a certain title in church and you don't have a title in church. And you think, well, I deserve that title and they don't, and they don't deserve it. It really doesn't have much to do with them, but you're jealous of what they have. Maybe it's, you see a certain group of people that they get ministered to more than you do. And now you're jealous. You're like, why is it they get ministered to and I'm not getting ministered to? But then notice how this dialogue continues in verse 15. And I think anybody who's read the storyline of Cain and Abel, you can definitely see that Cain hated Abel. So then in verse 15 of the main passage this morning, John points to hate being the moral equivalent of murder. We have to be careful what we allow to grow in our hearts. Going back to Ephesians 4.31, getting rid of all slander, rage, anger, malice, gossip, and learning the value of forgiveness and being kind and compassionate as Jesus is. Knowing that, as this verse says, We've, been, we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. This word, no, is different than the word I mentioned earlier. The word earlier was to know experientially. This one is to know reflectively. So now I want you to reflect back on your life and, and really what you've done last week, not just like your whole life. You're like, oh, there's little bits where I think it may be love. How have you added value to other people this past week? How have you intentionally added value to other people this past week? Those in your home and those outside of your home, how have you added value to them? Because if you've not added value to other people, I can say with some certainty that you haven't loved them well. So it's to know experientially and now it's to know reflectively. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Look at the certainty of that verse, verse 14. We know, not we wonder, he says, we know that we pass from death to life. We know that we're truly saved if we have this marker in our life. Because loving the family of God is a marker of spiritual growth. Loving the family of God is a marker of spiritual growth. You see, the world hates while the Christian loves. The world takes while the Christian gives. The world will die, but the Christian lives. I want to give you two questions. Two questions, a quote, and three points of application. The two questions, first one is this. How do you know that this love is present or growing in you? How do you know that this love is present or growing in you? Also, how can you grow in these areas? So how can you know that if it's present or growing in you? And then how can you grow 
in these areas. And all of us fit in, in, into wrestling or fit into categories created by these two questions. We either need to grow in it or we don't have it. It's as clear as that. A, a quote that I want to share with you that will tee up the three application points is this. Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for your own life to enrich the life of another. Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for your own life to enrich the life of another. So now you're not just going to tell people that you love them. You're going to show them that you love them. So let's take this quote and let's, let's, let's put some meat to these bones. First application point is this sacrifice. This was drawn from verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We are to live lives of sacrifice, living sacrifices. Imitators of God being the pleasing aroma to some and the smell of death to others, trusting that God's gonna do a good work with it. But we are to li be living lives of sacrifice. We're to live lives where we're not just satisfying our own needs, but we're also looking at how can we add value to other people. Greater love has no one than this than one who would lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus said in John 15. That when we are sacrificing ourselves to help meet someone else's needs, it's in those moments that we are being what Jesus is to the believer. Second, compassion. Compassion. So first it's sacrifice, being willing to leverage something in ourselves. And now it's to a different degree, compassion. If you're going to be compassionate, there are certain things that are going to be required of you. You're going to be required to spend some time with people. That's your most valuable commodity. You're going to have to spend some time. You can't say, well, I love the brotherhood of believers and never spend time with them. You're not going to be able to meet compassionate needs with people within the community of faith if you don't spend time with them. You're not going to be able to do this if you've busied yourself and you put everything on your schedule to run around crazy for your kids or you meet your own needs. That's not compassion. That's greed. That's not compassion. That's greed. But if we're going to be compassionate, it's going to require you to sacrifice some time. Perhaps sacrifice some of your, your talents that you have to go out and leverage the skills you have to help someone else within the family of God. And maybe even to uh, uh, even a greater degree for some, a lesser degree for others, your treasure, your money, what you hold so closely to, maybe you have to leverage that for the good of another. If you want to be compassionate, you're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to be ultimately sacrificing some time, some talent and your treasure. And the last one is this, has to do with seeking the good of one another, seeking the good of one another. I have somebody ask me after the 915 about these application points and the, the question was great, but they were wrestling with, well, how, how do I know what to do and when to do it? And, and I, I put it down in this statement. If it's in your power to do good, do it. If it's in your power to do good, do it. it. I can't make it any more plain and clear. If it's in your power to do good, do it. 
Some of you have more money than others. It's in your power to give to help those in need within the family of God. Do it. Some of you don't have as much money, but you're way talented. And you have a skill set that other people don't have. Use that skill set to seek the good of another and do it. And for you, maybe you, you don't have a lot of the other things we talked about, but what you do have is you have time. And maybe even in that, you don't have a lot of answers, but you have a listening ear. And maybe the most compassionate thing that you can do, the most sacrificial thing that you can do is just to sit and minister to someone who's even lonely within the family of God. You see, love within the family of God is a marker of spiritual growth. Love for the family of God is a marker of spiritual growth. So even in this, I certainly don't want to make you feel guilty, not any more guilty than what the Holy Spirit's drawing you to. But what I want us to, to, to talk about it in the last couple of moments of my talk is this. I want to ask you a question. How well are you loving people? I mean, how well are you really loving people? And I mean, if you're a born again believer and you're solid in that, man, I rejoice in that. I rejoice that you're following Jesus, that there's fruit of your salvation. That's amazing. I, wanna, I just wanna just cheer you on in that. But even in that, how well are you loving other people? How well are you really loving other people? <laughs> how well do you know the people in this room? Look around real quick. Look around if you would right? If you look around, we don't have a big fellowship. If you look around the room and you don't know the people in the room, you probably aren't loving them really well. That's a sad truth because it's really hard to love people you don't know. So how about we just get to know one another, meet the, just seek the good of one another, sacrifice what we have for the good of one another, and to be compassionate to those who need it.